right, everybody. Good morning to you. Glad you're here this morning. We are in a series that we're calling Quirks. We're just kind of walking through a bunch of the quirks that make Redemption Church so strange and try to explain them. And one of our quirks is that we are trying to cultivate a different relationship to pain than that might be like typical of Americans or even Christians. A different response to pain. The, you know, the normative approach to pain in our society is to avoid or alleviate pain as quickly as possible. Whether it's physical or emotional pain, we, we take a, a therapeutic approach to pain. There's a pill for every ailment. There's a life hack for any situation. And the quickest way out of pain is the recommended path. And I, I put both of those, kind of uh, avoiding, eliminating pain, I put both of those in, in, under the heading of escape. That's, that's the category. We try to escape pain. It's why blaming is so fun and popular, right? Because blaming is an attempt to discharge pain, to escape pain, uh, especially emotional pain. If we can pin this on somebody else, it doesn't hurt so bad, right? Um, and this is where, of course, things like conspiracy theories come from. Anybody got a family member who's like way into what QAnon or something, right? When, when we're faced with some painful reality and it's just overwhelming, people will embrace just the wildest ideas about what's really happening in the world, right? And this is just an attempt to discharge emotional pain. And I would like to say the church does this a lot better, but we all know that's a big fat lie, right? Because we have this tendency to say things like pain is punishment from God, or pain is evidence of some secret sin, or on the other side, make these promises, you know, like God will take your pain away. If you have enough faith, then the pain will be fixed, things like that, which can lead to, I think, which is a, a second very common response to pain, which is to pretend, just pretend like everything's fine, and then suffer in silence. This is a big church one. Um, because if, if we're going to say up front, pain is some kind of punishment for sin or, or judgment from God, then people, you know, who wants that on their reputation? Just suffer in silence and pretend like you're okay with everybody else. Um, and there's a third option, a common one. This is kind of um, like psychological or Freudian or whatever, but that, that is to repress our pain, which is kind of this form of self-deception. This always, repression always makes me think of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Anybody fans of Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Like, I can't be the only one who can quote half of this movie, and I can, right? But it makes me think of the Black Knight. You know the Black Knight? The guy who loses all his limbs? The, yeah, the nun shall pass guy. He, this is repression. He's like, your arm's off. And he says, no, it isn't, right? <laughs> well, what's that? He's like, it's only a flesh wound, right? And this is, this is the thing. I'm invincible. You're a loony, right? That's, the, that's repression. It's this kind of amazing faculty that we all have in the face of intense pain, we can sort of bifurcate our mind and just repress the pain, never consciously feel it. Unconsciously, it's causing us all kinds of trouble, but consciously, we feel like everything's fine. And this isn't just for, like, super unhealthy people. Everyone does this. We need to do this. If we, if we didn't do this, we would be, like, shattered and in pain all the time, overwhelmed. So we're all quite adept at kind of refusing to feel our feelings, um, of course, the problem with this is often we will turn to things um, like soothing things, distracting things like food, alcohol, shopping, porn, busyness, achievement, entertainment, all kinds of things that aren't so great. And of course, the, the pain will 
eventually erupt in some form or another, an, an outburst of anger, aggression, sadness, a bout of depression. You get sick or addicted, and, and when pain starts to bubble to the surface, then we typically move to blaming, conspiracy theories, whatever, some other form of escape. And, and so I mention these um, as sort of normative responses to pain. This is kind of what we're shaped to do in the culture at large. It, escape it, pretend it doesn't hurt, repress our pain until finally it erupts. And when it does, and it always does, because pain is <laughs> unavoidable, right? We don't have to go looking for pain in life. Pain comes looking for us. This is the cost of, of living. But when it does, you know, it sucks, right? Anybody who's lived through serious emotional and physical pain knows that pain is no picnic. And that, like, a serious bout of pain can bring all of life, every other thing we have going, it can just bring it, everything to a screeching halt. And we can't escape pain. There's no pretending at that point, no way to repress what's happening. And so um, we need an, another option besides these three things, a better option. And at Redemption Church, we've been trying to figure one out, trying to pursue a better option, a fourth option for uh, quite a while, more than a decade, maybe a decade and a half now. That's what I want to talk about today, because I think it's one of our, our quirks, the way we relate to pain. And, and pain is um, complicated. So I want to just let it be complicated. And um, the, the last thing I want to do is try to pretend that it's easy or fun or tell you that you're doing it wrong. Um, pain is complicated, and it's, it needs to remain complicated in part because there's so much power in pain. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way, but it's, pain is one of the most powerful forces we will ever encounter in our lives. Pain can move mountains. It can move the most stubborn soul. One of the great um, theologians of pain, Barbara Brown Taylor says this, she says, pain strips away all the illusions required to maintain the status quo. Pain begs for change. I think that's right one of the few things in life powerful enough to convince very stubborn people to give up on the status quo. Most of us will not change unless there's some kind of pain involved. And part of what we're trying to, to recognize at Redemption is that anything that has that kind of power in the world must be stewarded carefully. Many years ago, um, I ran into a sermon written by one of my favorite writers, Frederick Buechner, he wrote this sermon called The Stewardship of Pain. And that's what I would call the fourth approach. Um, learning, part of learning to be human involves the stewardship of pain. Being a good steward of your pain, he writes, involves being alive to your life, taking the risk of being open, of reaching out, of keeping in touch with the pain, as well as the joy of what happens. Because at no time more than at a painful time, do we live out of the depths of who we are instead of out of the shadows? I think it's brilliant. The difference between a life of depth and a life spent in the shallows is, is the stewardship of pain, which involves not just avoiding pain, but somehow letting ourselves feel it and through feeling it to examine it and examine our pain. Let it kind of, in a sense, become our teacher. And this is one of our quirks at Redemption Church. 
We are intentional about the stewardship of pain. We're trying to be wide awake to our pain, acknowledging it, asking it to become our teacher. Because um, as Buechner says, if our pain doesn't destroy us, it just might transform us into truly human beings at last. Now, I'm aware that this is not an easy way to live our lives, that it goes against the cultural norms, right? And, and it also means we're going to feel <laughs> a lot more pain, which is not the, the funnest thing ever. But I, I believe it's a better way to live. In fact, I think the stewardship of pain is essential to Christian discipleship. I would even say that there is no path to Christian maturity that does not involve the stewardship of pain. And I'm saying no path. There is no other path. For, for most of us, the ceiling for personal growth and maturity will be determined by our relationship to pain. And that's a big statement, I know, but I, I, I'm convicted that it's, it's right. Because pain serves a purpose. Rebecca Solnit um, says, another worthy philosopher of pain, she says, what you cannot feel, you cannot take care of. She goes on to say, we are a society that values the anesthetic over pain. We hide our prisons, our sick, our mad, and our poor. We come up with elaborate means of not knowing about the suffering of others and of blaming them when we do. Choosing not to feel pain is choosing a sort of death, a withering away of the expansive self. She's right. You know she's right. You've seen it happen. You've probably known it. I've known it to happen to me. And as Christians, I mean, we have to, at this point, remember, the cross stands at the center of our faith. And Jesus was constantly saying, take up your cross and follow me. And this should tell us that part of what it means to be a Christian involves some measure of surrender to pain. Barbara Brown-Taylor taught me to say it this way. She, she says, to follow Jesus is, in a sense, to undergo our lives without the benefit of anesthesia. We're going to feel everything. And this means we agree to go without like the, the crutches that prop up our emotional and spiritual instability, without the artificial fillers that we use, like to, to fill the space of sorrow, of longing, without the spiritual pacifiers that, that keep us quiet but can't nourish our souls. To follow Jesus is to agree to go without those things. We undergo our lives without the benefit of anesthesia. We're going to feel everything. And what we do with that pain determines our lives, who we are becoming how alive we become, what happens in our relationships, even just the day-to-day -day experience of life will be defined in large part by what we decide to do with our pain and whether or not, whether or not we steward it faithfully. Taylor has this great line. She says, um, it is sometimes hard to tell whether you are being killed or saved by the hands that turn your life upside down. Anybody seen that, felt that? That's pain. I know this from experience. I can never tell in the middle of it if pain is saving me or killing me because it feels like I'm dying sometimes. Another great turn of phrase, she says, pain makes theologians of, it, of us all. That's pretty good. The stewardship of pain involves refusing to um, escape or pretend 
but rather to stay with our pain, asking pain to be our teacher, to trace pain back at least a step, if not to its source, and let it teach us about our lives. Let it go to work on our character, our very being. I think this is what the Apostle Paul was saying in the, in the text that we read earlier. The, the, he was talking about Abraham, right? And the defining pain of Abraham's life was that um, he had no male heir, right? You know what a problem that was. I mean, you've seen Game of Thrones. This is a real problem if that happens. Sarah was barren, and the pain of this defined their life, defined their marriage, defined many of their actions. But there was this promise that Abraham believed in, and it's called faith that he kept chasing after it, even though nothing in his life looked like he thought it was going to look. But he didn't wallow in his pain. He just faced it down, tried to live, tried to keep living, walking in hope. Didn't do everything right, but he kept going. He kept faithing his way forward. And I think that's um, where the stewardship of pain begins. What Paul actually argues in that text is that hopefulness is part of the deal. Hopefulness is essential to how we deal with pain. And hopefulness is connected to our willingness to persevere, stick it out in the pain of life. He says, for we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Anybody just repeated that to yourself like a mantra at some stage in your life? Yeah, I'm not the only one. Paul links the stewardship of pain to this practice of hope, hoping. Pain and hope track together. Persevering through pain, he claims, leads to hope. So what's hope? What do we mean when we use this word hope or hoping through pain? Whenever I think of hope, I always think of this thing that happened. It was like 1998. My band, Satellite Soul, had just signed a record deal, just released our first record, and we went on the road in a 15-passenger van that we called the Petri Dish because it was just boys in this van. And um, we were on the road for 200 days that year, which is a lot of time to kill in a van. And um, I started just reading like crazy, and I was working through John Irving books. Any fans of John Irving? He's one of my favorites. So I was reading um, The Hotel New Hampshire. Anybody read The Hotel New Hampshire? It's, it's a deep cut, I know. Um, but it's about this really eccentric family who had uh, their family pet was this dog that they named Sorrow. That's what they named it, strange name for a pet. And they loved this dog so much, Sorrow, that when it died, they took it to a taxidermist and had it stuffed. It was a really weird family. Um, so that they could keep their dog with them and pretend it was alive. And then in this like cruel twist, um, part of the family dies when their plane crashes into a lake. And all they recovered from the crash was this stuffed dog, Sorrow. It's a very, very dark book, very kind of depressing story. But it, had, it was stuffed with styrofoam, so it floated to the top. And so, like, this <laughs> big theme of the book was that sorrow, the dog, sorrow floats. That's, that's the claim. And it's not just talking about the dog. It's saying, in life, sorrow floats. So I'm reading this book. This is 1998. Very same year, me and Kristen, when I was home one time, went to go see a movie. Um, with Sandra Bullock and Harry Connick Jr. called Hope Floats. Anybody seen Hope Floats? I'm, I'm guessing more people saw the movie than read the book. Um, 
It's about this woman whose husband tells her live on TV, on a reality TV show, that he's in love with her best friend and he's divorcing her, right? And because where else would you say something like that but on reality TV? Um, and so she, she leaves and has to move back to her hometown with her mom. And the pain of it all forces her to face some really ugly truths about her own life. And, and you watch her in this film work through the pain. And she changes and grows. And kind of the big thematic claim of the movie is that in the end, hope floats. Right? It's the last line of the movie. Sandy B says, my, my mama used to say, beginnings are scary, endings are usually sad, but it's the middle that counts the most. Just give hope a chance to float up, and it will. That's what she says. Floats, you understand, is, is a metaphor for what kind of bubbles to the surface of our life. So to say hope floats or sorrow floats is just to say those things have natural buoyancy, right? They rise to the surface almost just as a matter of, of physics. So I, I, I'm reading this, this book about sorrow floats, and I'm watching this movie with Kristen that says hope floats, and because we'd only been married for about a year at this point, we got in a big argument about which one of those is correct. Is hope float? Or does sorrow float? And because she's, you know, a pretty optimistic, decent, hopeful person, Kristen said that hope floats. And because something's fundamentally wrong with me, I said sorrow floats, right? And we argued. And I was like, there, that's why there's country music. Sorrow floats, <laughs> right? Sorrow sings, for heaven's sakes. And it's 25 years later, and I have to tell you, that I still think I'm right. <laughs> and you probably have an opinion, sorrow floats or hope floats, um, but I'm gonna try to convince you I'm right. Um, I think sorrow floats. And what I mean by that is, in the face of pain and suffering, like in the midst of grief and loss and disappointment and misfortune, I think sorrow is the easiest thing in the world. When, when the pain of life comes, and it's one of those times where it just keeps coming, it's just relentless on us, the path of least resistance is sorrow. Sorrow seems natural to me in a way that hope is not. Sorrow floats. It bubbles to the surface. It takes very little effort. And hope isn't like that. Hope doesn't float. Sorrow floats. Things like sadness, grief, disappointment, those things float. They're more like default emotional states that are as easy as gravity. Hope is, is much more work than that. Or you could say, hope doesn't float, hope swims. That's what I think. Sorrow floats, hope swims. We have to work at hoping in the midst of pain. And that's, that's a lot harder. And part of the problem is we don't really understand what hope even is. I mean, for most people, if you say, Would you, what, how do you define hope? They'll say something like, hope is just holding out for my desired results. That's hope. That's not. It's not, that's not what hope is, at least not in a, in a Christian sense. But most people think hope is just waiting for things to turn out the way I want and wishing things were different and then clinging to that wish we call the clinging hope, right? And that's what most people believe, 
which means that, in, in essence, hope in kind of the popular sense just means wishful thinking. Which seems to me, also because I'm depressed and something's wrong with me, uh, much closer to the definition of sorrow, right? Sorrow is the pain of wishful thinking, the pain of holding out for desired results. Sorrow is what happens if we refuse to remain open to a different future than the one that we had in mind. So sorrow is connected to this refusal to, refusal to change, to move on, to open ourselves to something different than what we wanted. And to do that, I think, requires hope. And hope can be a, a lot of work. If I were to define what, what I think Christian hope is, this is what I'd say. Hope is opening ourselves to a future we can't imagine, and maybe don't want to, and trusting that this future will be good, even if it's not what we wanted. I think that's hope. Sorrow is wishing. Hope is waking. Hope is walking. Hope is a response to pain that involves working our pain and letting it open us, um, allow, allowing it to wake us up to God's future into our own lives, and then learning to kind of confess and relinquish what stands between God's future and our lives in their current state. That's, that's a big statement. Let me say it again. Like, hope is a response that involves um, working pain so it can wake us up to God's future, and then confessing the difference between that future as it's beginning to unravel and what's happening in our lives right now. That's hope. It's waking to our lives, to the truth about our brokenness, and then once awake, to keep going, keep walking, even though the future seems murky. And so hope is it's always connected to faith. Hope means faithing, in a sense. Keep walking toward a future, trusting it will lead us closer to flourishing and wholeness, even though we can't see it right now. And that kind of that hope doesn't float. It swims. It takes effort a refusal to go down with the ship, you know? Effort in the midst of pain. I mean, sorrow floats, but hope swims because it involves work and stewardship. And there's a sense in which, um, in our approach to, to pain, what we're essentially doing is testing the thesis that you find your life by losing it. And pain often means <laughs> surrendering some part of life that you're attached to, that you kind of like, like, and there's no way to make that easy. And, and it doesn't make it easier when you tell somebody in the midst of their pain, you know, God has a plan. Like, please, for heaven's sakes, don't say that to people. Um, and here's the, here's the thing that most churches will not say to you because they think they're heretical and it's totally orthodox. Um, when you're in the middle of pain, like, as it's unraveling, it becomes um, extremely difficult to sense God's presence. I mean, our conviction is that God absolutely is present, but it hardly ever feels that way. After the fact, we can often see it, but in the middle of intense, intense emotional or physical pain, it's very, very common, and I sit with people all the time in pain. It's very common. I would say the vast majority of the time, people say something like, I don't see God in this. I don't feel God's presence or purpose in this. 
in this pain. I think it's one of the real gifts of the gospel of Matthew and Mark that in Jesus' final hours, neither did he. On the cross, he wasn't like, oh God, I'm just grateful to get a chance to suffer for the gospel and endure this pain for your glory, right? He was like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's my Savior. And if he can say that, we can say that. I can hardly get through a day these days in my life without some form of, my God, why have you forsaken us? And, and the stewardship of pain involves a willingness to say that, and then the next step after that, that's the stewardship of pain. What am I missing? Why can't I see it? If I keep walking, where do I put my feet, right? What kind of future is trying to be born in the world? I can't see it right now, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step, and you've got to put something under there so I don't fall. It really is a form of taking up your cross. What piece of me needs to die off so the future can be born? I once heard uh, a wise woman um, say that she thought intense pain, those seasons, are, are like being pulled through the knothole. That's what she called it, like a knothole in a fence. Like, you got to get to the other side and you can't go over it. You get pulled through the knothole in the fence. That's, that's it. That's pain. And she was trying to say, like, some of what we think we are doesn't make it through. And if you want to go through, you have to let go of it. And you'll be different on the other side. And pain is the only thing powerful enough to convince us to let it go. Anybody who's been pulled through the knothole of life, you know what I mean. You're not the same on the other side. And there's a pain to that, but there is a um, grace to that. Because what dies off isn't, isn't really you. It's just what's killing you. It's what's holding you back. The weird thing about the stewardship of pain, I think the weirdest part, is that nobody can tell you how to do it. Like, every, every life takes its own course. There's no three-step plan for how to handle pain. If you find one of those, like run, because it doesn't work that way. We don't handle our pain. Our pain handles us. Like, that's the whole point. And so, to, to work with our pain really just is to say, just stay with it long enough to learn its lessons. Don't escape or, or pretend um, our way out of the pain, because the purpose of pain seems to be to kill off the part of our lives that are killing us anyway. They're not working, even though we don't want to let them go. I mean, pain mostly just says, face your stuff and change. Face your stuff and change. Face your stuff and change. That's just what it says. Face your brokenness. Let, let it die what needs to die. And it will continue until you do, right? There's no program or self-help book or life hack to make it stop. We have to, we have to just find a way to move from, ouch, that hurts, to like, what is the meaning of this pain? That's, that's the stewardship of pain, moving from ouch to what does this mean and how should I respond? I think about the best that I can do um, instead of like a three-step plan is to give a couple of metaphors that have been helpful to me. So I'm going to give you two of them. Um, the first is the image of pain as a gold mine, which kind of fits with the idea of we need to steward it. So the object of a gold miner back in the, you know, gold mining days, like miner with a pick and shovel or whatever days, 
Um, the object is not to hurry out of the mine as quickly as possible. It's to stay in there and sort of like sort through every square centimeter of rock and soil, you know, that's mining, examining every bit of it, sifting through it, searching for nuggets of gold. That's the stewardship of pain. It involves kind of attentiveness to details and discipline. Working through our pain is like panning for gold, sifting through it, searching for little nuggets of wisdom and truth, which, by the way, aren't usually about the meaning of life or the like nature of existence. It's mostly just about how like I'm a jerk sometimes, you know, or uh, I hurt people because I refuse to change or tell the truth about myself or whatever. The insight pain has is mostly just about me and my brokenness and how it's hurting those I love. And it's standing between me and the future of God. And so we steward our pain like we're panning for gold. We swirl it around and, and examine it, not, not wallowing in sorrow, but hoping, faithing toward the future of God. This almost always, to do this, requires the presence of another person. Almost always. A, a friend, a neighbor, a spouse, a pastor, a counselor, somebody to help us pay attention, to help us see things that we're trying very hard unconsciously not to see, right? spot those nuggets of wisdom and truth. That's one. That's one image that's been helpful to me. There's another one that's a lot more gross, but it's really great. I think this is great. Um, and that is the image of pain as a truckload of dung, right? Like the fertilizer kind of dung, right? Somet sometimes pain hits us from out of nowhere, and it's like coming home from a long day's work and finding a truckload of dung has just been dumped on your front yard. And you didn't ask for it. You weren't prepared or warned about this. In fact, you're already tired and a little bit stressed out about other things, and somebody has just dumped a truckload of dung on your front yard. And there's kind of no escaping it. Like, you made some calls, but nobody wants your truckload of dung, you know? And <laughs> so you're going to have to deal with this. And you try to ignore it at first, but the smell is really bad, and your neighbors are giving you the stink eye, no pun intended, and your food doesn't taste right because the smell is so bad, and you can't sleep at night for the smell. And that's what, you know, that's what pain is like. Pain impacts everything. Nothing functions right when we're in one of those seasons of intense pain. Eventually, we realize, like, the only way to deal with this truckload of dung is to find a way to put it to use and to find a way to cultivate things that need to grow with this dung. And so we start working it into the flower beds, one shovel at a time, and taking wheel wheelbarrowfuls to the gardens and turning it into the soil and spreading it all over the, the lawn and watering it in. Because the only thing to do with a truckload of dung is to cultivate things with it allow it to sort of mix together with our life and, and find ways to let it grow, to let things grow from it. That's the stewardship of pain. It's, it's like panning for gold. It's like cultivating with a truckload of dung. And there, there's no easy, like, quick way out of it. There's no three-step program for pain. But there are ways to practice and this is one of the pieces that we try to pay attention to. There are ways to practice and increase our capacity to hold space for pain 
instead of just running out of it. It's part of why we pay so much attention to the church calendar at Redemption Church. Because twice a year, there are these seasons where we draw pain to the surface and try to learn how to pay attention to it. It happens um, in the four weeks of Advent and again in the seven weeks of Lent. It's 11 weeks out of the year, like more than a fifth of the year, we, we spend time attending and practicing pain. And those are, a lot of how we do it is just through fasting. Fasting is a great way to learn how to do, do pain. It's pain training. I'm hoping to increase our capacity. It's also why we pursue justice and being paired with the outcast, because we're trying to practice in small ways, coming alive to pain, seeing it as a resource that we can, like, pan for, like gold, or like a truckload of dung. It's a, it's a pain. It is painful, but it can make things grow, and we learn to cultivate it and hope for new life to emerge. So we're trying to, as a church, include these practices just in our our normal way of life to see if we can increase our capacity for pain and also learn how to hope, which is a lot like faithing, waking, walking. The last thing I want to give you is this. When I said sorrow floats um, and hope swims, I have one caveat to that, and that is I do think it's possible to live within a community of people in which almost everybody is, is swimming for hope. You know what I mean? A hopeful community. A hopeful community, it's not hope isn't a possession, you know? Every, if, every, if everyone's swimming for hope, facing their own pain, working through their pain, and changing, growing, faithing as a result of it toward the future of God, a future that maybe... Um, they didn't ask for, but they believe will be good. When that happens, I do think hope starts to float a little bit. It's easier to hope when you live your life within a community of hope. Hope becomes a little easier when you live within a hopeful community. It's not simple. It never gets easy, easy, but it starts to come a little more naturally. It starts to bubble up because you're seeing other people hope, and you're like, oh yeah, that's who we are, we, we're hopers. And when you're surrounded by a bunch of hopers, it's easier to do. And so I really want us to be able to do this, to at once tell the truth about our pain, and to not just escape it, to let it be our teacher, but also to hope, to say, okay, it's not gonna be like I wanted, but I believe that the future is good. And, and I think we can, I think we're already do this, doing this. I think we can do it more. Become a community just with this really high capacity to feel the pain of life, but who are coming more alive because of it as we chase the future of God together. Let's pray. Oh God, we um, do thank you for pain and for the way it can lead us to more life. I pray, God, especially for folks who are in seasons of just really intense pain, those who the pain right now 
feels a bit unbearable. I pray, God, that you would be very near to them. I pray that we would be brave to share the hurt with other people. That we would help each other look at it and swirl it around and see what lessons are there for us all. Help us to not be afraid of our pain, but to try to become wise stewards of it. To see it as a resource that's part of how you're making all things new. It's hard to believe sometimes, God, so help us in our unbelief. Amen. I invite you to stand, please, and we're going to receive communion now. The way that we do communion is we just come forward row by row, and you'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. Just take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say, um, I will remember, or amen, or however you're used to responding. We do this because on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and broke it and, and passed it around to his guys, and they all ate. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then after supper, he took a cup and passed it around. They did the same thing, all drank from the same cup. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, a new deal between you and God that's accomplished in my life. Blood meant life for them. And so he said, whenever you gather, eat this bread, drink this cup. It's in, in a way it's saying, take my life into your life. Be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. And then I'll send you out into the world and let the world feast on you. And so that's, what, that's why we do communion every week, just to remember what we're made of. And so we invite anybody who calls on the name of Christ to join us at the table. And we'd invite you just to pray with me as we bless it. Lord, we do ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?